So I think that at this point in time, most people in this room realize that I really love stories. Stories um, bring a depth of meaning and, and connection for me. Um, I have at least one story in every sermon um, because it helps me really connect what the words of scripture say with, with my life experience and with the life experience of other people. But I, I like stories. I just like stories. In my family, we like stories. We enjoy a good story. And, um, and having those kind of memories connects all matter of things for me and brings meaning so that um, you might not know this about me, but when I'm driving through town, if I drive down the street that I know you live on, I might wave to your house and I will think about you and I will say a prayer for your well-being this day. And, and if I go someplace that maybe you and I shared uh, a beverage at or, or, uh, or someplace where we went on a mission trip together, I will think of you and I will lift a prayer for you. When, when I'm driving down the highway, when I go past a city where I know the pastor who's serving in that community, I wave to them. Hi, I hope you're doing well today. And I lift a prayer for them. I, I carry the stories with me and, and it helps me connect with the people and it helps me remember and, and brings meaning to my life in amazing ways. And, and part of the work of this sermon series that we're doing this summer then is to help us connect with that great company of all those who have finished their course, right? And when, when we have All Saints Sunday and we, we celebrate those who have joined the eternal choir and, and, and have entered into life triumphant, and we talk about that great company, we are surrounded by that great company of saints. Many of them have written hymns that we sing, and maybe we don't have any personal connection with them yet. And I, and I want us to have that connection. I want us as we're singing a song and you hear a song comes on the radio and you think, oh, my friends and I used to sing that together in high school. Or you hear a song and you think, oh, that was the first song I heard after this significant life event. And that always brings it back to my mind. Or, or that was my mother's favorite song or those kind of things. I want us, when we're singing the hymns, to remember this great crowd of witnesses who have carried the faith forward and have left us these beautiful legacies and and the beautiful words. So today we're going to talk about Georgia Harkness, um, who was a lifelong educator. And, and therefore, these words from Romans, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, was something that she lived passionately. She dedicated her life to helping the renewal of the minds of all manner of people, including herself. Um, Georgia Harkness was born, remarkably, in Harkness, New York. Anybody ever heard of Harkness, New York before? It's near Lake Champlain. And it was named after her great-grandfather, her great-grandfather being Daniel Harkness and his wife, Abigail. Now, I need to pause here and share with you a wonderful story about Daniel and Abigail. Georgia was raised up Methodist, as was her father and her grandfather, but not her great-grandfather. Her great-grandfather, Daniel, was actually raised up in the Society of Friends that we also sometimes refer to as the Quakers. And um, Daniel was the first um, person of European descent to uh, arrive in that particular area and, and began a little farm and, and a community started developing there around it. And they named it after Daniel then, so they called it Harkness, New York. And... Um, 
when he arrived there, he was part of the Society of Friends. But, and this part, see, as I'm hearing stories, it reminds me of other stories that I know. And this part of the story reminds me of Terry Scott. Because the Quakers didn't approve of Abigail's clothing. She wore what they considered worldly clothing. She had a red coat. Now, if you know Terry, you know that red is one of her favorite colors, and she almost always has a red accent somewhere. Well, Abigail apparently also liked red, and she had a red coat. And she wanted to wear her red coat, but the friends thought that that was too worldly. It attracted attention to her clothing, which was unbecoming. And so they told Daniel that he needed to have his wife desist from wearing that coat, and he backed her choice to wear that coat. And so the friends, in a very unfriendly move, booted them out of their society. Whereupon they found the Methodists, who apparently like red coats. And they became Methodist, and the family all transitioned, and so Georgia Harkness was raised up a Methodist. Uh, she was born on April the 21st in 1891. She was the youngest of four daughters born to Joseph and Lily Harkness. And um, they were, as you can tell from Daniel and Abigail, their family was rather progressive thinkers. And that tradition carried through the generations. And so she was raised up fairly progressive. And she was very scholarly. She was a very, all the way through, a serious student. And um, so she was awarded a scholarship to go to Cornell University. And when she got there, there were not very many women who were allowed in college in that point in history. But she found a a society there. Um, At Cornell, there was a a big Greek network, lots of fraternities, but nothing for women because there weren't hardly any women. So they didn't have any sororities. But there was a Christian organization that had uh, begun there on the campus, and she found for herself a spot in that. She became part of the leadership of that Christian organization. And and the point of that Christian organization was was two official reasons and a third benefit. So uh, the third benefit was that you had a group of of Christian friends that you could socialize with, a, a community of people that you could hang out with, which is really important, especially in your college days, right? Um, I say that because those are so formative and a lot of times it's the first time you've gotten away from the home where they make you go to church, right? And so it's good to have a group of people who can help kind of keep your focus on some uh, some good values and, and making good decisions for your life. But the other two official reasons for the group was one was to provide a a volunteer organization where they did perform Christian service um, in their community. But all of that was really for training them up to be missionaries in foreign lands. And so Georgia signed a pledge as she joined that group that it was her intention upon graduating from college that she would be sent as a missionary overseas to do the work of Christ in lands where Christ is not yet known. But when she graduated, circumstances in her home um, where her parents lived um, didn't allow her to to leave the country. They needed her closer to home to help with some of the things that were happening there. And so she took a job teaching high school. Sadly for Georgia, she discovered that many high school students aren't actually serious about their studies. What's with that? I'm sure nobody in this room ever experienced that. And so she was feeling very dissatisfied because she found that she had a lot to teach and a real passion, a real energy. And the students didn't actually care that much. 
And it was a great frustration for her. But she taught in a high school for about six years, and then Boston University opened up an advanced degree program that allowed women to enroll. And it was a, a program for religious education at Boston University, and she enrolled in that. Um, And in 1918, she entered Boston University in their their master's degree program for religious education. Let's pause just a moment to think about what else was happening in 1918. First World War, yeah, First World War, okay? So while she's entering college, the First World War is breaking out. Now, remembering that she was raised up fairly progressive, which is why she even was attending school, um, one of the things that that, um, was rather an unspoken assumption, and many of you have heard of this before, and some of you might not be aware of it, but a lot of times when women went to university, they were there to get a degree, but, but many people just thought of it as the MRS degree, right? that you would meet a husband there and you would become a missus, an MRS, right? So you went to college to get a degree, but mostly you went to college to meet a husband. You were looking for your MRS degree. And that's what, so when she was going to college, they didn't actually anticipate that the women would do anything other than get married and have a home. And uh, and so that's why they didn't really plan for these advanced degrees. And even in the advanced degree program, they weren't all that sure that women really needed this. So there weren't a lot of women in this, uh, in this degree program. But I want to share with you what her thesis was about because it could be written in, in this year. It could be written in 2017. So here is her thesis for her, um, her master's degree in religious education. She found herself confronted with the great social questions of the day, immigration. Is this an issue anymore? Yeah, a hundred years later, this is still a huge issue. Boston was a major East Coast city with a large influx of Irish and Italian immigrants. And how would the church respond to the influx of these new immigrants? What kinds of problems did they face? What were the possible solutions? Do we have these same questions today, but just trade out the nationality? Yes, we do. And how are we responding? This was, this was the work of her master's thesis. I will tell you, reading her books this week has been a joy. Um, so in her thesis, The Church and the Immigrant Problem, Harkness attempted to answer some of the questions. In an age of xenophobia, do we have any xenophobia happening in our world today? Yes, and that means a fear of foreigners, in case you're not big on words like that. Fear of foreigners. Yeah, there's a lot of fear of foreigners, isn't there? In the age of xenophobia, Harkness's tone proved to be very conciliatory. She dedicated her work to our brothers, the new Americans. The book is also decidedly optimistic. She addresses a number of problems, including racism. Do we have any racism these days? Yes. Health and hygiene concerns, any health issues going? Anybody debating about health issues anymore? Oh my gosh, right? Assimilation concerns and lack of adequate housing. It's amazing to me. This was her thesis 100 years ago, and it still speaks to our times today. 
She, in, she graduated with her master's degree, and uh, just as the First World War was winding down, and now she had this master's degree, and she, she traveled and did some speaking in academic settings. And she did travel to Europe. And while she was in Europe, she visited some of the battlefields and, and, some of the, uh, and saw firsthand what war had done to the communities. And it affected her in two very strong ways. One of them is she became a, a deep pacifist, that she, she saw what war did, and she realized that the, the, the gains accomplished were seriously outweighed by the damage inflicted, and that there must be a better way to, to resolve our difficulties. So she became a deep pacifist. But she also started to lose a little of her optimism. You heard the description that her, her thesis was very optimistic on how we could address these problems. But she started to lose a little bit of her optimism. Because part of her upbringing and part of her outlook on life was that, that humans were, we were evolving, that we're, we were being transformed by the renewal of our mind and that, that we were growing in our ability to embody the nobility that God had given to us. And there are several places in scripture where God says, I will write my laws on your heart. And you are not going to need to teach each other anymore about what's right and what's wrong because I will write my laws on your heart and people will know it. It will be intrinsic to who they are. And she believed that that's how we were moving. But as she was confronting with the horrors of war, she came to understand that she had been sheltered and that much of humanity was not actually on that same upward journey of nobility. She went back to Boston University and earned a PhD in philosophies of religion. And she went on from there to teach at a women's college in Elmira, New York. And, um, and then from there, she went to teach at what is now Garrett Evangelical United Methodist Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. She was the first woman to teach theology in a seminary in the United States. We can celebrate that. Um, in 1926, now here's a little something that will help connect. So we celebrated um, that Sifu Yu has now been awarded his local pastor's license. And let me explain a little bit of terminology of the United Methodist Church because a lot of people look at me and say, well, you're a local pastor. You pastor our church right here. You're a local pastor, which is in the United Methodist terminology is not accurate. Um, in, in the broad world language probably would make sense, but there's specific meaning to be a local pastor. And so for me, I'm actually an ordained elder in full connection. And by that, it means that the church has given me authority to be a pastor everywhere I go. I can pastor here. I have pastoral authority across the street in another state. I can go anywhere in the world, and I still carry the pastoral authority of the denomination with me. But a local pastor is given a license to be the pastor in that local church. And when they step off of the property, that authority is not granted to them beyond the local church. And so we are celebrating that Sifu has received his, his certificate, and he has been appointed as a local pastor here working with the Hmong language ministry and our English language ministry. 
And we celebrated that. And today, as part of his authority granted to him by the church, he was able to preside over Holy Communion without having me there. As a matter of fact, I was able to come and receive communion from him today. So when Georgia Harkness was ordained in 1926, she was ordained a deacon, a local deacon, which gave her zero authority unless she was appointed somewhere, which she wasn't. So it was a very symbolic move. Literally, they ordained her and gave her absolutely no authority. However, 12 years later, by the way, 1926 was the year my parents were born. So the year my parents were born, she was ordained a deacon. In 1938, she was ordained an elder, a local elder, not given an appointment, therefore having zero authority, having no voice at annual conference. But she continued to push for the full inclusion of women and the full ordination of women. She moved from uh, Evanston out to Berkeley and she taught at Pacific School of Religion as a professor of theology. And my father traveled from Kansas to Berkeley so that he could have her be his professor of theology. Um, In Kansas, he, he, uh, he and my mom both graduated from Baker University, and his professor of philosophy, which is what my dad's undergraduate degree was in philosophy, his professor of philosophy had also gone to Boston University and, um, and shared with him much of the, the, the theology that was kind of developing and formulating there, and, and my dad really wanted to have a chance to study with George R. Harkness as his professor. So the family relocated from Kansas to uh, the Bay Area so that he could attend the Pacific School of Religion and have her be his teacher. And so this week I was able to talk with my parents a little bit about, about her and what she was like and how, how uh, um, being her student, uh, what was that like for them and, and what kind of a person was she? And uh, a few things I just want to share with you. She was um, very down-to-earth. She was extremely knowledgeable, extremely knowledgeable, agile brain, uh, could really powerfully um, dissect um, theologies and, and, and lines of, uh, traced lines of, of any kind of... Um, you give her a catchphrase like, uh, you know, Jesus died for our sins. She can trace that, of how that, where that came from, where that kind of thinking originated and how it has been shaped and, and what that, those words meaning would carry. And she could do that in such a way that you didn't have to have a degree to understand her. So while she was extremely knowledgeable and, and, and had um, the high respect of the academic community, she was also able to relate to people who were not seminary students and really ex- help them grasp and understand the significance of the, of the thoughts of, uh, of theological understandings of who God is and why that's important to our life. Um, she was very hospitable. That was back in the day when, when uh, professors knew their students and students knew their pastors. They'd have them over for dinner, and she would invite people into her home and uh, was always a, a welcoming and inviting environment. Um, but she pressed forward. She pressed forward on this getting women ordained. And now we're moving into the 40s. And what happened in the 40s? World War II. 
So you remember that when she was completing her undergraduate degree, she was very optimistic. And then she started encountering what happened in Europe in World War I, and her optimism was a little bit deflated. Now as they enter into World War II, she, she maintained her pacifism, but she said that her thinking was now a chastened liberalism. That she came to understand that this, this nobility that we're called to isn't something that's going to evolve naturally. That, that it requires the grace of God. And that if we think that we're going to get there without the grace of God, then we are deceiving ourselves. In 1948, in the late 30s and into the 40s, she was part of the group that brought together and formulated the World Council of Churches, and she helped to write their articles of incorporation and was part of the group that founded the World Council of Churches. And uh, it was a very meaningful time for her. And in 1948, at their meeting in Evanston, Illinois, they, um, they had a debate on whether or not women could be ordained. And at the time, there was a very well-known theologian. His name was Karl Barth. Anybody here know Karl Barth? Heard of them? I'm pretty sure we've got a couple of people here. I'm looking at yeah, all the former pastors. We're going, yeah. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so he stood up to explain why women could not be ordained. And he had a list of reasons, and he shared them, but he did it rather paternalistically, kind of like, well, little Missy, let me help you see why it just can't happen. And he laid it all out, which she listened very respectfully, and then when it was her turn, she totally dismantled every one of the arguments, point by point by point. She just took everything he said and totally dismantled it. She won the day (laughs) on that, on that debate in that setting. But what's great for me, what I just really love, is that a year later, this is documented because a reporter asked a question. There was a Q&A time, and a reporter asked the question, you know, so you know that Georgia Harkness woman that you debated a year ago? And his response was, remember me not of that woman. Like, Don't remind me. Don't remind me about that. So the reporter wrote it down, the quote, remember me not of that woman. So, uh, yeah, so he didn't, Karl Barth didn't like her. But... Um, in the 1956, then, um, Georgia Harkness was in the first group of women ordained to elder in full connection in our denomination. I was ordained an elder in full connection in 1996, 40 years later, when we celebrated um, our mothers in the faith who, who knocked on the door for such a long time before it was finally opened. And we give thanks for her life. I want to invite you to take out your hymnal. Um, Because one of the things that happens and one of the things I really want us to do, and we're just going to take a minute or two to look at this, is that when we're singing hymns, how many people do this? You're singing a hymn and something hits you, you go, wow, that's powerful. But then you're on to the next verse and you don't have time to really contemplate that. And then you think, I'll go back and read it during the week. And you never do. Does anybody else do that? Yes, a few people in here. So we're going to look at 178. 178. And this is a hymn that has been written by Georgia Harkness. And I just want to lift up a couple of verses. We're going to look at the first verse, Hope of the World. So, so Georgia then at the end of World War II and all the horrors that happened and moving then into the nuclear arms race was 
completely convicted of the understanding that humans are not going to evolve to a nobler place, but only by God's grace. And so she writes this hymn, Hope of the World, Thou Christ of Great Compassion. What hope do we have as we're, as we're not only inviting the whole world into war, but when that war is over, we're engaging in an arms race that potentially could eradicate our species and even destroy the entire planet. What hope is there for our world? But only Christ, only Christ can save us from ourselves. Speak to our fearful hearts by conflict rent thinking of our time right now do we in this room anyone in this room know of a family whose hearts are filled with fear and there's division because they don't understand right they can't see the other's perspective and their hearts are torn in two by this fearful division do we know of social groups do we know of political groups who are so afraid of each other that we are ripped apart. Right? Speak to our fearful hearts by conflict rent. Save us, thy people, from consuming passions, that, that desire to be the top dog at the expense of everyone else, that nuclear arms race that was just getting underway who by our false hopes and aims are spent, that somehow having more weapons than anyone else is going to actually bring us security. These false hopes that we turn our eyes to, they actually don't bring us the result we want. And she goes back to say, hope of the world. The only hope that we have. You see... For her, she started out so optimistic, and then it kind of got deflated, and then it almost went into a a level of depression, and then she saw the darkness of the human soul away from Christ is, is hopeless. It's just darkness, and there seems to be no way forward, but yet, in the death of Jesus and his resurrection, we see that this despair does not have the final word, that, that at the very foundation is that knowledge, that there is a way out of this darkness. And that way is Jesus. Look at verse 3. Hope of the world afoot on dusty highways, showing to wandering souls the path of life. Each of us then wandering our, our spiritual journey, our life's journey, and Jesus continually showing us that path of life. She says, walk beside us, lest the tempting byways lure us away from thee to endless night. You see what she means in that? That apart from Jesus, there is that utter hopelessness. And we will never, we will never rise to that nobler state apart from the grace of God. So I invite you, when we're singing this hymn, I think we're singing this for our closing hymn today, I invite you to think of Georgia. Think of Georgia right here in the room with us. Welcome her into your life, part of that great cloud of witnesses who have worked 
so diligently through her life to bless the lives of others by the transforming and renewing of their mind. Will you join me in a prayer? Loving God, we thank you so much for Georgia and the way that you created such a persistent and amazing woman and how she used her life to bless us lo these many years later. We thank you for that, God, and we ask that you would help us to use our lives in ways that bring blessing to future generations. Help us to keep our focus on Jesus, the light and the hope of the world, so that what we're saying and what we're doing not only is a good witness for Jesus, but carries that light forward so that those who are yet unborn might receive this good news. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now let me share with you a little bit about the next hymn we have. The next hymn is going to be, this is my song, is that correct? Okay. So Lloyd Stone of Hawaii began this text as a prayer for peace as he tells of his love for his country where his heart is and what his hopes and dreams are. And then he acknowledges that other people in other lands also have similar hopes and dreams. In the last stanza, Georgia Harkness wrote as a prayer that God will may be done on earth and that all nations will one day rise to honor Christ. So as you're able, let's stand and join and sing this hymn. 